Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we continue our Women Explorers series. And for this one, we are going to Antarctica. It's real cold. It's so cold. But I felt like it was appropriate since this is a summer podcast series. So if it's heating up where you are, we're going to cool down with some information on women exploring Antarctica, or at least trying to, actually first asking if they could and then being (laughs) told they couldn't, but then they do. And I just got to tell you, Caroline, that before coming into the studio to record this podcast, I was looking at our notes for this episode, and all I could think of was uh, Led Zeppelin's immigrant song, you know, the one that starts off with like, we come from the land of the ice and snow. <laughs> and that's my Zeppelin impression. Yeah. I can hear the guitars in my head right now. Where the midnight sun and the hot springs flow. So, But there are no hot springs in Antarctica. No, they weren't talking about Antarctica, but it just <laughs> felt, um, it felt appropriate. And also I wish that that opening guitar riff could be the intro to our podcast, just to make it a little more radical. Why is Robert Plant so selfish? I don't know. I don't know. Um, So, first of all, let's just orient ourselves geographically, because I'm not going to lie, listeners, I needed a little bit of a refresher. So, Antarctica, FYI, we're talking about the South Pole, and it's essentially a continent covered by a massive ice shelf. And fun fact... Polar bears and penguins never hang out together because Ugh. I know, right? Ugh. Because polar bears are exclusive to the Arctic and the North Pole, whereas penguins hang out in Antarctica. Oh, yeah, so God, that just like destroyed some some fantasies I have about animals. <laughs> about animal friends? Not, not yes, animal friends. Nothing sexual. God, but they hang out with seals. And walruses, right? Cool. Okay. So that's that's yeah. fine. Yeah. That's okay. They got cool, cool things to do. And one other geographical note is that Antarctica and the Arctic are really not very similar at all when it comes to traversing them. This was something that explorer Rosie Stancer was describing um, because she has trekked both of them because she is a, a tough woman. She says... They're incomparable. They're like little sister and big sister. Antarctica is huge and vast, and it's a big endurance challenge, whereas the Arctic is much more capricious, cruel, whimsical, and unpredictable. You don't know from one day to the next what challenges are going to be that day. So let's go to the big sister. Let's head to the huge and vast endurance challenge that is Antarctica, which is sort of a geographical metaphor for women trying to explore Antarctica. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting to, <laughs> to think about why you would want to go there because it is so cold. And if you are an explorer who is or was going to Antarctica, you were risking a lot, mainly your life, but also some toes because traveling there meant risking frostbite, exhaustion, snow blindness because, you know, it's all white and you've got the sun bouncing off of it. So then you've also got your snow blind and then your sunburned. And then because you can't see, you can fall into a crevasse through the ice. And so why would anyone ever go there? 
Well, because it's incredible. I mean, that's one thing that you take away from almost anyone who has written about going to Antarctica. It's like once you once you go to Antarctica, it just captivates you. It sucks you in, and you. They. It's. I, I don't know that I've read of anyone who ultimately didn't want to go back, except perhaps some of the earlier explorers who were wearing a lot of wool because they didn't have high-tech gear from REI and other outposts. Um, so they would wear wool, which meant that they had to constantly keep moving because if they stayed still too long, uh, the moisture that the wool would collect would then freeze. <laughs> really inconvenient. So inconvenient. But... So exciting. I mean, mm-hmm. to go to a land, Antarctica is the one place where no one had been before. It's not like going into, you know, when, when, uh, Europeans first, you know, came across the ocean and were like, oh, hey, here's other people living here in Central America. We're just going to claim it. Also, it's not named Central America yet. <laughs> but with Antarctica, it was completely deserted. No one was there. So, what an alluring place to go. And so no surprise that 1900 to 1925 is known as the heroic era of the Antarctic explorer. Right. So, I mean, it's it's the unexplored, mysterious land. It's it's something that no one has discovered yet they know it's there but they don't know is it one continent is it one sheet of ice are there are there polar bears and unicorns there like we have to figure out which animals are playing together on this continent but so in this era the heroic era of the antarctic explorer we end up getting 16 major expeditions from eight different countries and in in the middle of that the early 1910s there's a race for the south pole which was eventually won by someone from norway which is not that surprising raul amundsen who reached it in december 1911 yeah he pulled a switcheroo actually in order to accomplish this he told everybody that he was heading to the north pole but people had already been to the North Pole, so he wouldn't have been the first. And so once he found out, he was like, ho, ho, tell no one we are going to the South Pole. <laughs> and so he got a head start and reached it first. But then in 1928, sort of in true explorer hero form, he actually died in a plane crash in the Arctic Ocean. But he always said that he wanted to, if when he died, he wanted to die in Antarctica. So he sort of... He kind of got his wish. I mean, he died in a very cold place. This is a very cold place. Yes, it was a chilly plunge. But, so, if all of these heroic explorations are going on, I mean, women have always been outsiders in terms of exploration. You know, they're not given the proper training, the proper funding, the proper education. They're not allowed in the geographical societies. Um, So, they've always been sort of looking over the edge, like, hey, I'd like to come too. You know, and it makes sense, because these men are achieving this this fame, this glory, this heroism, and and they want to be a part of it. Well, and there was polar fever. Because, obviously, this race for the poles was highly publicized. I mean, it was very exciting. This was like, you know, we now have things like a reality show called The Great Race. There were actual great races taking place at the time. And so plenty of people wanted to join up, including some women. And there was actually a 1914 letter that some women wrote to famed 
Arctic explorer Ernest Shackleton, who led three Antarctic expeditions, and they were begging to join his voyage. They wrote, We have been reading all books and articles that have been written on dangerous expeditions by brave men to the polar regions, and we don't see why men should have all the glory and women none, especially when there are women just as brave and capable as there are men. To which Shackleton said, Um... Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> You're not coming. It is funny. I mean, we'll talk. We'll talk more about it in a minute. But it is so funny to read about men's like complete, just disgust with the idea of women being with them on these Antarctic explorations. Well, it was particularly this panic over women being in this inhospitable climate, the super cold climate that we wouldn't be able to. We just would freak out, I guess. Yeah. You know, I mean, the uterus, if the uterus is exposed to too much cold, it'll freeze. It'll freeze. And then, then you've got a solid uterus floating around making you hysterical. And, and that's just worse. Pull you down. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like the weights that were in Victorian women's dresses to right. keep them weighted down when they s- swam. History, everyone. History. Uh, but women did first arrive in Antarctica in the 19. 19- 30s. So on February 5th, 1931, we have Ingrid Christensen, no relation, uh, from Norway, who was a 38-year-old mother of six, and her companion, Matilda Wegger, who were the first women on record to have ever seen Antarctica. They didn't get off at that point. They didn't touch down, but they saw Antarctica. And they were, the only reason they went was because Christensen's husband, had the largest deep sea whaling fleet in the world at the time. And so she was able to hop aboard and come along for the journey. Meanwhile, though, in Britain. So in our last episode, backtracking just for a minute, we talked about land explorers, women exploring the lands both near and far and how Britain was really sort of not excited about letting women a, explore, but B, join their official geographical society that would have given women sort of a leg up to legitimize them, so to speak. And so, yeah, at the same time that uh, Christensen is kind of hanging out with her husband's whaling fleet and taking a gander over the ocean at Antarctica, women in Britain were applying to go on these missions and they were all rejected. And it would take, as we will talk about further, a very very long time for British women to be invited to be invited by Britain onto these expeditions. They were able to sneak around and kind of go with uh, other expeditions. But I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because next up in 1935, we have to talk about Caroline Mickelson. She was the first woman to set foot on an island just off Antarctica. She is often cited as the first woman to set foot on the continent of Antarctica, but more recent research has found that she was probably, uh, she probably touched down on Macquarie Island in the sub-Antarctic. And there's a flagpole that still marks the spot. But nonetheless, even though she might not have been on the main continent, she still touched her feet down on Macquarie Island. And for that accomplishment, there is now Mount Carolyn Mickelson on Antarctica. Hmm. So hey, she got a mountain named after her. Yeah, but just two years later, January 30th, 1937, uh, Christensen, Ingrid Christensen, who we mentioned just a second ago, and her daughter Sophie and two other women become the first to set foot on the actual continent. 
Yeah, uh, but as far as I know, no mountains. They didn't get a, a mountain in their name. Um, but then jumping forward 10 years, because yes, in these early, well, actually not so early, in, in this period of Antarctic exploration, women, the, the timeline for women is a bit scattered because there just aren't many who are allowed to go down there. And usually, um, as in the case next up of Edith Rohn and Jenny Darlington, um, similar to uh, the situation with Ingrid Christensen, it's thanks to their husbands that they're able to tag along. So in 1947, we have Edith Ron and Jenny Darlington accompanying their husbands, becoming the first women to winter on Antarctica. And the crew on the ship wasn't necessarily happy about this. This was a very arduous journey. I mean, at one point, uh, Jenny and Edith stop talking to each other because their husbands were fighting. And so in loyalty to their husbands, they stopped talking to each other for a little bit. And uh, But the fact that there were women on board and also obviously later on Antarctica rubbed a lot of men the wrong way because it was just assumed that they were going to ruin everything. Yeah, yeah, women, you know. Jenny, who's Canadian, her husband quipped after this journey, it's just that there are some things women don't do. They don't become pope or president or go down to the Antarctic. So, well, we're we're down one of those. We've been to the Antarctic. Who knows if we're, you know, we might knock down that president thing pretty soon, too. Who knows? (laughs) Who knows? But so Edith Rohn, she's 28 when she goes down there. She's American. She is the first American woman to set foot on the continent. And she worked to help the seismologist aboard who was keeping track of the tides. And so Edith helped the seismologist do all that stuff and served as the trip's historian. Yeah, and also in recognition of her first as the first American woman, she the Roan Ice Shelf uh, is named after her. And it was interesting because after she comes back from this trip, she initially just wants to distance herself as much as possible from it because it was a harrowing experience. It was very difficult. There was a lot of infighting. Obviously, it was cold. And I think it wasn't until the 1990s, that she even revisited the diaries that she kept during that trip because it was so tough and she didn't want to go back. But the allure of Antarctica is strong, folks, because even though initially she was like, I never want to go back again, that was terrible, she went back three times and made a name for herself going around and lecturing about Antarctica and about you know, the significance of her being a woman there. And she eventually became president of the Society of Women Geographers, as well as a member of the Explorers Club. Uh, remember, not gender desegregated until 1981. And she was also a member of the American Polar Society. And that expedition, that first expedition in 1947, was significant because it proved that Antarctica was, in fact, all one continent. Yeah, with penguins. With penguins, but no polar bears. That's <laughs> cute. That's important. It is important. But despite this, women were still not being taken seriously as Antarctic explorers. This was a huge ob- obstacle for them, much as it was an obstacle in any type of exploration that women wanted to pursue. They just weren't taken seriously. And the opposition to women going on expeditions was focused on women's inferior physical and psychological strength. And this is coming from Robin Burns in her book, Just Tell Them I Survived. 
Uh, it was also focused on the primitive living conditions and the possible deleterious psychological effects on men of having women in their midst. And I think that's so funny because if we are the weak ones psychologically, then why are guys so worried about the psychological effects that we will have on them? I mean, there were all of these like ideologies of gender that people talk about and people writing about not wanting women to wreck the illusion of the frontiersman, the the hero illusion that these are, especially like in this era, right after World War II, men going on all male journeys to Antarctica, that, that was like a, going with your battle buddies. That was like escaping bad economies at home or escaping the stresses of home and going out with your all male battle buddy crew and discovering something awesome and being a hero. Women sort of, they were worried would just destroy that whole illusion that they built up. Which was probably the, the, you know, the thinking behind that too was because it would, uh, sex would ruin everything. Because when you put, you know, you have men on an, an essentially like a massive deserted island of sorts and then you toss women on there, then apparently our lizard brains are just going to make sure that we all just die because we all we can think about is sex and then nothing will get accomplished. Yeah, somebody wrote, I can't remember what it was from, but somebody wrote that, you know, I don't want to send women down there until there's one woman for every man. And all the gender stuff is really fascinating when you consider two things. The fact that when men were down there, you know, largely in the, the absence of women, they were having to take up the typical, you know, female domestic duties of cooking and cleaning and sort of housekeeping or tent keeping or base keeping, whatever you would call it. Um, so they were sort of subverting gender roles in their own way, even, you know, at the expense of women not being allowed on these expeditions. But also when you look at the topography today of Antarctica, there are so many features named for women. Yeah, there's no problem. I mean, like women's names are riddled across this continent with the Rhone Ice Shelf or Mount Carolyn Mickelson or even Queen Maryland or Marie Birdland. But it's like in symbolism only should we have the female presence here, at least during this era in, you know, the post-World War II exploration phase. Yeah. And also during this period, you have gender being used to sort of reduce the perception of the Russian threat. I mean, you have to consider that Russians were allowing women to participate in all all types of expeditions. A Russian woman was the first woman to go to space. This also included Antarctic missions. So uh, this this whole idea of women going Russian women going to Antarctica made people in America and Britain, basically try to make fun of them, calling them softies, saying that, oh, they're going on this journey that's supposed to be heroic, but they're, you know, they're softies. They have carpets and dial phones and girls at camp. Yeah, this was something that Burns talked about in Just Tell Them I Survived, which is a collection of stories about women in Antarctica. And she talks about how in this era in particular, these women who went to Antarctica were almost exclusively referred to in the media as girls. And there was this notion of the female invasion that she writes lasted in press reports well into the 1980s. And it's just funny to think of how um, this intersection of the Cold War plus gender plus Antarctic exploration all combines into these you know, splashy media stories of, oh, look at those, those Soviet reds in Antarctica. Well, we, they aren't a threat because women hang out with them. 
But things do get better once we get into the swinging 60s. We start to see more progress in terms of women scientists being allowed to do work in Antarctica. In 1969, in fact, the first American women scientists were sent down to work on the continent. And prior to this expedition, though, the U.S. Navy, which had established the McMurdo Station, which was America's main base on Antarctica at the time, refused to transport any women to Antarctica. It was really the Navy who put their foot down and said, no, no, we're not going to let these women loose lips sink ships. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Women not allowed on ships. So why would we take them to Antarctica? Yeah. uh, But then you have Colin Bull, who was then the director of Ohio State University's Institute of Polar Studies, who lobbied for years for the Navy to change its policy. Yeah, and he makes the incredibly good astute point of the fact that there is no difference if you look at scientists with their parkas on. A woman scientist looks exactly the same as a male scientist when they have their parkas on. So let women go. There's no reason to keep them from going. And so finally, in 1969, four American women, geochemist Lois Jones, Kay Lindsay, geologist Eileen McSavany, and then undergraduate chemistry student Terry Terrell went down to Antarctica. And I love Terrell's story of how she was able to join up with these other women because, again, she was an undergraduate student and her boyfriend at the time had just gotten back from an Antarctic trip doing some sort of STEM work down there. And she was bored. She was in the lab. All the work she was doing felt very monotonous. And she had been hearing about these Antarctic trips. And she said, I want to go. And she heard that Lois Jones was heading up, uh, you know, fem- all female because the Navy also insisted that it be all female. She was setting up an all female expedition. And so she just went to Jones's door, knocked on it. And Jones was like, oh, well, tell me what you do. I don't know. We've already got somebody. But then that other woman who was going to go wasn't able to go. And so Terrell, just by leaning in, kind of, I mean, this is like a great example of women. If you want something, you might as well ask. Yeah, I mean, and they said that they needed a cook and a field assistant. Perfect. She could cook. <laughs> she could be a field assistant. She had lab experience, so she ended up going. Yeah. you She's never, 19. You never know. When you knock on a door, who knows? Maybe you'll go to Antarctica. <laughs> yeah, I'll have no knocking on doors for me. Don't want to go where it's cold. But it's also funny how the Navy changed its tune so quickly once the women are down there. And I guess they realize that, oh, OK, this is actually all right. Uh, all right. They, they will survive and things have not been completely ruined. So on November 12th, the Navy organized a media event making those four women who came down, along with New Zealand biologist Pam Young and Detroit Free Press science writer Jean Pearson, the first women to touch down on the South Pole, that spot on the globe. And the way that they ensured that was it was pretty much like a one, two, three jump. Yeah. So that there would be no woman who was first before the others. They all came out of the airplane at the same time. It was very, very planned and staged, but it was a hit. And that same year, New Zealand became the first nation to appoint a woman to a permanent scientific position for Arctic work. And I should have seen if it was, in fact, biologist Pam Young, who was that 
was that woman. I'm not sure. I don't have the name in front of me. But hey, go New Zealand. Yeah. So some progress is being made. Nonetheless, women remain a minority in Antarctic research well into the 1980s. But um, there are some interesting points along the way. For instance, in the late 1970s, and I want to read more about this, but apparently Argentina and Chile, which were both you know, sending scientists down there as well, they flew pregnant women to give birth on Antarctica, mm-hmm. I guess, to test how well the childbirth situation could happen in the cold. Well, I don't I don't think it was scientific. I think a lot of it was tied to land claims because the idea of sending these women down to give birth automatically created some sort of like genealogical birthright claim to the land because I think, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, because now Antarctica is like, it's open season, it's multinational research-based, it's not claimed by one country. But back at this time in history, I think there were a lot of people trying to make claims to it, and so the more people that they can say they popped out, they're like, oh, we popped out some kids, so naturally we have like this birthright to this section of the Earth. But think about that. Those governments were willing to send down pregnant women, a legitimately, I don't want to say like at-risk population, but think about how those governments sent down pregnant women. I mean, considering the fact that even today, doctors advise against women in certain, you know, like late trimesters, even flying in a plane, much less going to Antarctica. They sent them down so as to possibly help out with some land grabby situation, maybe. But women scientists weren't allowed. Isn't that interesting? It is interesting. But pregnant women also aren't a threat. That's true. They're not trying to do any science work, God forbid. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting how women and their bodies and their names were used. But scientists weren't okay. Yeah. Just just interesting. Although although it was getting okay. It was getting okay. Um, In 1974, backing up a couple of years, there was marine biologist Mary McWinney and sister Mary Cahoon, a nun, who went down for the U.S. to Antarctica. And it was like once these American women started going down, then you start seeing Australian, French, and German science teams following suit, sending more women. But the the one holdout, uh-huh. old Britain. Yeah, guys, what? Yeah, they still weren't super into the idea of, of women scientists going down there. To the point that female British applicants would receive a letter warning them that there were no hairdressers or shops on Antarctica. And then I just, I just flip the table over and walk out of the recording studio because that was, I mean, what? a relic of a bygone era. They might as well have just said women be shopping. Yeah. <laughs> women can't be shopping on Antarctica. Um, so, but, but Britain will catch up eventually, but, but not yet. Um, in the eighties though, we have a couple of things happen. Uh, Elizabeth Chipman publishes the book Women on Ice, which is sort of an, one of the earliest, I guess, initiatives to really publicize the work of women in Antarctica and also talk about the women who had gone down in probably not so much of a scientific capacity like Carol and Mickelson, who, you know, is the first one to step down on Macquarie Island. And then a few years later in 1989, Australian Diana Patterson 
becomes the first female station leader in Antarctica. Which, I mean, that's impressive. Like, finally, finally, they let a woman be the manager. That's great. Uh, finally. Um, because, you know, a station leader is heading up a lot of different staff members, people like doctors, scientists, meteorological bureau people, radio and communications people, a chef, because somebody has to make some food. Penguins. Penguins. God, who's going to control all the penguins? I would really love to go to Antarctica. To see the penguins. I don't want, I don't want to just see them. You want to hug them? I want to hug them. Yeah. Yeah. I don't Um, think we can do that. Yeah. Uh, And then in the nineties though, this is when British listeners, all right, things are, things are looking up for you because, uh, there was still some waffling over sending women on winter expeditions because, I mean, I would not want to go to Antarctica during the winter. It is dark and it is even colder. Um, And so really the overwintering was the last big obstacle for women exploring Antarctica because it was like at first it was like, okay, well, you can come down. You can like touch your feet down and then scramble back to the ship. Oh, you can come down for the spring or summer, but definitely not the winter. But now by this point, obviously in the 90s, we have women who have spent the winter and survived. And there are also in the 90s more women becoming serious about Antarctic trekking. Actually, just, you know, like going out and trekking hundreds of miles to, say, the South Pole. And this kind of similar activity is also happening at the North Pole as well. Right. And uh, this is in January 1993. That's when we get Anne Bancroft leading the American Women's Antarctic Expedition. Uh, she arrived at the South Pole after covering 700 miles in 67 days. And we talked about Anne in our first introductory episode. Um one of the team members on this expedition, Anne Dalvera, said she just wanted to prove to herself that she didn't have to be a burly big man to make this journey. Yeah, that's what she told National Geographic, and she proved it. She definitely proved it to herself. Uh, and the following year, probably prompted by these kinds of accomplishments, two British women over winter and their success finally breaks the ice ceiling, shall we call it, (laughs) regarding the British team's attitudes toward women being there. Finally, in 1994, and also that same year, Liv Arneson, which might be a familiar name if you listen to our introductory episode on this Explorer series, became the first woman to ski solo to the South Pole, which was a 50-day expedition of 745 miles. And a couple years later, one woman who blew me away with her story in 1999, Jerry Nelson, who's a doctor and she's in Antarctica, discovers that she has breast cancer. She performs a biopsy on herself and then administers chemotherapy to herself while she is on Antarctica. Yeah. That's that's hardcore. Yeah. I mean, if there were any doubt that women could survive in Antarctica, the answer is yes and then some. Seriously. How you self-administer a biopsy also is beyond me. That's so incredible. But there was another. It might have been Robin Burns who wrote the book we referenced earlier, Just Tell Them I Survived, or someone she was writing about um, who had wanted to go to Antarctica for so long and then found out while she was in a waiting period, found out that she had breast cancer. And the one thing she talked about that got her through chemotherapy 
uh, was the prospect of going to Antarctica. Mm -hmm. And she made it. She ended up making it down there. And then getting a little more contemporary in 2001, we have Anne Bancroft and Liz Arneson again teaming up now to become the first women to ski across Antarctica. Um, but the year before, there was actually uh, Norwegian-born Sunivi Sorby and Yulok Settlemark of Greenland who had to cancel their planned Antarctic crossing after a sponsor dropped out. Um, and I was reading about this in National Geographic in an article talking about what we've talked about a lot in the series, that need for funding, mm-hmm. because it's not cheap to go and ski across Antarctica. Yeah, you can't just pack a sleeping bag and a tent and some heavy coats and go. You you need a lot of resources to be able to survive down there for any length of time. Yeah, you need like a really good cell phone service. <laughs> no kidding. So today, though, if we're, if we're moving up in the years, women compose around a quarter to a third of expeditioners. Although, as we talked about in our intro, that whole funding issue can still be quite a challenge. But you have people like Rosie Stancer, the one that we quoted at the top of the podcast, talking about the differences between Antarctica and trekking across the Arctic. Um, she is planning an expedition to the North Pole in 2015 in order to become the first woman to walk to both poles solo. And she is being financed by none other than the Prince of Wales. There we go, Britain. Yeah, there Britain. we go. <laughs> Making up for lost time. Cool. But I love, I love how she, how she looks at this. I mean, she, she really likes that isolation, those solo trips. Um, one very adorable story, uh, is she said that I had a message from my base camp manager saying that the Russians who kept an ice strip over to, on the other side were giving up and going home because of the appalling weather. All of the ice had broken up. I was the only human being left on the entire Arctic Ocean. Five and a half million square miles of ice, all to me. Me, me, myself, me. And I danced a little jig. I just thought it was so amazing. Yeah, and that was her talking about one of her expeditions to the North Pole. Um, But then, I mean, this woman is tough. And I think, uh, which we could say of all the women who are doing this kind of exploration and also adventuring, uh, in 2007, she had to stop just 89 nautical miles from the North Pole after cutting off two of her own toes due to frostbite followed by gangrene. Yikes, lady. She literally took herself to the limit and was finally like, oh, well, I guess I can't go any farther because this, I mean, I lost two toes, no big deal, but this s- snow blindness is really getting <laughs> to me. The sunburn. Yeah. So, but, but something to look forward to, though. In, yeah. 2015, I'll definitely be rooting her on. Absolutely. And I mean, speaking of 2015 and the future, I mean, there are so many great reasons if you can stand the cold. There are so many great reasons that scientists and other researchers go to Antarctica. There are so many things to be discovered. Yeah, that might be a big question. I know it was a big question for me uh, at the outset of looking up stuff for this episode was, well, why would you go to Antarctica in the first place? What can you discover in all of that snow, well, silly Kristen, so many things, of course. Uh, PBS actually uh, did a nice overview of all the different kinds of STEM projects happening today. Um, on Antarctica, just side note, there are four permanent research stations occupied by researchers from 18 nations. So I, I imagine it's sort of like the International Space Station 
of Antarctica, if that makes any sense at all. Um, and it's a major hub, no big surprise, for climate change research. So one of the projects, for instance, is mapping the subglacial Gambertsev Mountains, which could then offer clues into the growth rate of the East Antarctic Ice Sheet, which would then offer clues to how ice sheets might respond to climate change. And then I don't have to go from, you know, explain how those kinds of ripple effects could impact us here in terms of global water levels. Right. And in terms of environmental research, the pristine environment in the Antarctic makes it a great location to study how pollutants travel through the atmosphere. I mean, people have found that mercury, for instance, can travel so far and work its way into that pristine Antarctic ecosystem. And astronomers can have a great time down there because of the dark skies. They stay so dark for so long. It's not like there's a whole lot of light pollution down in Antarctica. And then marine biologists go down to study the remarkable sea creatures that manage to survive in cold climates. I mean, they've discovered organisms that survive nowhere else on the planet, you know, that are specifically evolved to stick it out in Antarctic waters. And then for astrophysicists, its location at the bottom of the globe means that it sits at the perfect spot to study the Earth's gravitational and magnetic fields. And on and on from there. I mean, mm-hmm. for, for all of the, the letters in STEM, there is something to learn on Antarctica. Yeah. So um, when you guys go and you explore Antarctica and you find the secrets of the universe, like write us an email or something and tell us how it was. Send us a photo, yeah. please. I know that there is an Antarctic researcher who's a big fan of Stuff You Missed in History Class, mm. our sister podcast. And uh, she said that those podcasts really get her through the I think she was overwintering. And just got helped get her through those Mm -hmm. dark, dark days, literally dark. Um, So if there are any Antarctic researchers also listening to us, how exciting that would be. Yeah, I want to hear, like, just write us a book and send it. I just want to read everything. Just a book. That's all we ask (laughs) for, please. Um, But this was uh, this was really fun to research, though, because Mm -hmm. I think it's a spot that maybe we don't think about all that often. And yet is so fraught with so many fascinating layers of uh, gender and history and STEM yeah, and, and penguins. And warmth. How do you stay warm? Oh, Hugging man. penguins. You hug penguins yes. and they keep you warm. I know. I know. See? Yeah. You can go down there sure. now, Caroline. <laughs> well, now we want to hear from you. Have you been to Antarctica? Are you planning to go? Or are you an Arctic explorer? I know there has to be somebody out there. Who is? And we really want to hear from you. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us your thoughts at MomStuffPodcast or send us a message over on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I've got a letter here from Emily about raising boys. And I wanted to share it uh, just to sort of start a conversation among other listeners to get some feedback. So I'll dive ahead. She writes, The thing that I struggle with is the lack of good information on how to teach our boys about how to be well-rounded men instead of just the Disney character stereotyped dashing prince who conquers what and whomever he chooses. One thing that I've thought a lot about is teaching my boys about sexual violence. I know that they'll be raised in an environment with good role models in my husband and me, but I think we need to expose them to more. 
The statistic that really startles me is that one in five women will experience sexual assault in college, and I wonder what the reverse is. How many boys will be the perpetrators of sexual violence? How do we end that cycle? I was the victim of attempted violence twice in my college years, and until recently, I thought that was an anomaly. It's startling and sad to think that these men probably had well-meaning and hard-working mothers just like myself, but these crimes still occur. I'm wondering if you would consider doing a podcast or part of a podcast about raising boys in our culture and how we might begin the process of changing the norm of sexual violence perpetrated by men against women and men. And this is something that uh, I've thought about a lot as well in terms of, I mean, the fact that we have a lot of male listeners, which makes me very happy. Um, but I do also think that there is a need for inviting more men and boys to the table to have these conversations, to learn about the kinds of things that we talk about a lot on the podcast. Um, but I really want to hear from guys on this. If you have any suggestions on whether we should do a podcast like this, what we should talk about, things that you have found helpful, please let us know. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send us a letter. Alrighty, I have a letter here from AJ about our single dad's Father's Day episode. She says, as the proud daughter of a single dad, I don't hear too much about the way I was raised in popular culture, and people typically have a lot of questions. Namely, where was my mom? My parents divorced when I was 11, and for a number of reasons, my dad got full custody. And my mom and I now have a good relationship. Yeah, at times it was a little awkward going through puberty with just a dad in the house, but who isn't awkward during puberty? Anyway, I love the positive stance you took in your podcast and the celebration of mine and all the other single dads out there. My dad helped me through two ankle surgeries while I was in middle school, went to meetings for the high school band boosters, took me on a road trip to visit potential colleges, and all those other parent things, all while holding down a demanding job. My dad and all the other parents going at it alone, men and women, are so often unsung heroes, so thanks for bringing attention to cool, alternative families like mine. Oh, and one of my favorite things? Busting stereotypes about kids of single parents. I earned my doctorate in psychology three years ago at the age of 25. Take that, haters. So congratulations, AJ, and thank you for writing in. And thanks to everyone who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks is where you can email us. And for links to all of our social medias, all of our blog posts, videos, and 500-plus podcasts, including podcast sources, there's one place to go and explore. It's StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 